by talking to creative people, those who think differently, they understand uniquely, and they see the world in their own ways. Don't get me wrong, I love what creatives produce, but often the story behind the story is what really inspires me. I want to know where ideas come from. That's where the magic happens. That's the creative backstory. Hi, I'm Kelly Planner. I'm so glad you've joined us on The Creative Backstory. I have known my guest today for a really long time, decades. Scary to think. Um, Lucky Platt is an artist, an illustrator, and most recently the author of Imagine a Wolf, a children's book about a wolf who isn't exactly what you think. So when not writing, Lucky spends her time painting murals, building the most amazing things out of cardboard, working alongside other creatives. And I have to say, I have always been in awe of her talent and so glad she decided to come talk to me about creativity today. Welcome, Lucky Platt. Wow, thank you. That was a lovely introduction. And wow, it has been decades. That's kind of a... <laughs> we talk about getting old that way. <laughs> but we're getting better. Like, don't you feel smarter and happier oh. and more creative? Oh, totally. I mean, I don't, I think that you and I both were really creative kids. We did so many cool things together uh, and had all kinds of opportunities for, you know, exploring, you know, our interests in, I mean, both of us were theatrical, we were writing, we were drawing all the, you know, from the elementary school onward but yeah this does feel it is it's pretty neat to to be able to realize a project and have it sort of out in the world in a bigger way I mean that's that's an adult thing and that's a really or at least in my story anyway that's something that I have uh, really appreciated as a as a grown-up <laughs> yeah so what's the difference when you were approaching a blank paper piece of paper back in the day to when you're approaching a blank piece of paper now? What's the creative process and how has that changed over the years? You know, it's something I was thinking about blank canvases today and um, I was actually writing this little uh, proposal for a workshop that would sort of deny the blank canvas. I, I almost think that there, for me, there isn't one and because I trick myself into thinking that there's always something there, even if there isn't. So I have these little tricks that I do uh, to, uh, to put something down before I'm actually starting so that I'm actually responding to the thing that's there that's not a commitment, but it's like a sort of a teaser or, a, you know, it's a beginning of things. And I, I realize I need those, like, I mean, the blank canvas, I remember encountering it in college as a thing, as like a, you know, consider the rectangle and sort of all these kind of like, you know, theoretical things about kind of painting and design. And I realized my, my process is just to sort of put something in, into just make a mess essentially, and then kind of resolve it or let it kind of speak to me and say like, what does it want to be? So. You've probably just 
completely blown a bunch of people's minds just there. And, you know, maybe you'll make it easier for <laughs> some people who walk up to blank pieces of paper. Like when we were kids, we just kind of started scribbling oh. and. Right. I don't think we can, we didn't consider the blank. And I guess I sort of still want to live in that world. So I have these ways that I trick myself into thinking that I'm still in that world of, you know, this, that, you know, I'm, that I'm already responding to the idea as opposed to sort of having to sort of pull it out of the air. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, that's good. So, you know, with that in mind, where, where do these ideas come from? Where do our ideas come from? Because I, I think creativity is sometimes really hard work. I think so too. I think that uh, where ideas come from is, is everywhere. I think it's more about being uh, open. So I feel like the, the ability to sort of recognize that something is kind of talking to you or saying like, Ooh, pay attention to me um, is as important as anything. Like I've never really like sat down and said, okay, like ideas, please flow in. Like I just have instead had like almost like I, I don't think this has ever stopped for me. I remember it from childhood, I remember it now. I mean, I experience it now where it's just, it's like a constant flow of this, what if, you know, this could, what, what would happen if I did this or what, you know, kind of like how to finish, how would I finish that story? Or like, you know, uh, it seems to be ever, the ideas seem to be ever flowing. They seem to be abundant. And then it's like the the next step. It's like, okay, what uh, what am I going to do with this? Like, what like what's it, is this intriguing enough to sort of take it somewhere? If that makes sense. But I like the ideas of the discipline of creativity, writing things down and keeping track of them because things go in and out of our heads constantly, and we're we're always at a place where some ideas in some flux or a dream we had, like if you don't write down your dream, it's gone in the morning. So what's the so discipline of it? Yeah, it, oh, so it's so true. I, I feel like I have for, I can't even remember when I started doing this, but I carry around a little black book. I have tons of them now and they are places for making notes, little drawings. Um, they go with me to every, lecture I go to, every museum visit, every there, I'm always with this little black book that's a place for recording things, uh, documenting things sometimes, or just letting ideas kind of have a place to land. Uh, and then I go back into these and sometimes make some really wild connections and realize that something I was thinking about 10 years ago is still really resonating with me now. Like, so I love that kind of, and it's not a diary. It's not, it's not a, here's what I did today. It's more of a sort of the things that kind of popped out of a conversation that I just needed to sort of have in writing. And I think the act of writing something down too, and I, someone said something really beautiful about this, which I'm going to totally butcher, but like that you, that actually the hand is really important in that so that it's not the same to kind of make a note in your iPhone that using your hand to writing on a piece of paper is using a different part of your brain and it's sort of stimulating something different and it's you know really um, a better system of recording at least I at least I found that to be really 
true. Yeah, I, I've always liked the, the feeling of a pencil on paper. Oh, totally. And a specific kind of pencil. I, I happen to be, do you know the black wings? Are you a fan of black wing pencils? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love with those. Yeah. Like, Any pencil, that'd be a little bit I, of I, I use them down to like this. <laughs> They're like, like an inch, inch long. I know. Well, this yeah. one's still good. And you know, the thing about pencils is generally speaking, they're not going to run out of ink on you. Right. Like you could right. just go, you know, right. they a lot of the fear. Because invariably, anytime I pick up a pen, it's going to die on me halfway through the best thought right. ever. Right. And I'm trying so to like carve it into the paper, you know, and it's just no good. It's no good. I think we should talk about Wolf. So Wolf is a series of blank pieces of paper, but when did it, when did it occur to you? This is your first book, right? It is my first book and it's a kind of a whirlwind story. Do you want that story? Yes. So the wolf as an idea was born. Do you want to summarize wolf for the listeners? So, so people are on board. Well, the wolf, the wolf of my book is very different from the wolf. That was the, the origin story wolf. Um, the wolf. So I guess I could sort of, by telling you the origin story, I can kind of like, okay, good. Travel down a little road, and then you can sort of find. You'll sort of see how the wolf got to be wolf. The origin story of wolf is that I was at a children's book workshop that where there was a challenge to do a mashup of storybook characters. And the character that came into my mind was a wolf who was burdened by the weight of fairy tales, essentially feeling literal weight from having overeaten, uh, but all, you know, in, in the sort of tradition of the three pigs and grandmother and all of the sort of those stories, um, this was, a, a, it was an, a wolf who was overeating, not taking care of themselves, and, but also feeling perhaps a little bit of, of remorse and a little bit of sort of regret and seeking counseling. So, and this wolf in particular was seeking counseling from the Cheshire cat. So sort of this absurd kind of mashup scenario that never really went anywhere. Of course, the Cheshire cat would have been completely useless as a counselor, but that was part of the fun of it. It was just like, a, it was just an idea to kind of play around with in a narrative sequence. So I drew it and then I just couldn't really let this wolf go. And the original wolf that I drew was a little bit of a trickster, much, much sillier than my wolf, much more of a wink, wink. I'm, I think I want to be better, but maybe I really like my old life too, kind of. But I couldn't let go of this idea of a wolf who was seeking to be seen differently and perhaps to be seek, seeking some kind of, of reform of behavior but ultimately seeking to be seen differently. And, and so this idea of the fairy tale that encourages this notion of wolves as, as predators, as very, you know, as uh, something to fear. Um, and that um, next to my always idea of wolves as these majestic, beautiful creatures who have families and are loyal and, then, and that, and then just imagining a world somewhere in between the mad, the sort of majestic wild animal and the fairy book 
fairy tale book character of a wolf. So wolf was born of that kind of imagining of this creature, this magical creature that would exist somewhere in between our kind of notion of wolf as wild animal and notion of wolf in, in fairy tales, which generally tends to be pretty negative. And the wolf would ask to be seen differently. I knew that from the very beginning that wolf would, would ask the reader to imagine themselves differently. And I also was very much influenced by a poet who I talk about a lot when I, in conjunction with my book, um, because I couldn't have written the book as it is without the, his words, that's Padre Gotoma. Do you know his work at all? He's a, he works in conflict resolution. He's an, he's an Irish poet who I discovered through wonderful um, Krista Tippett's podcast on being, which is one of my favorite podcasts. And he talks about this notion of this, of the fairy tale, not wolves in particular, specifically, but the notions of fairy tale negative characters and this need that we have to have fairy tales that bring us together as, as opposed to pulling us apart or pointing out our differences, um, the way these sort of negative uh, uh, notions of in fairy tales might do. And instead fairy, find the fairy tales or rewrite the fairy tales that bring us together. So I, I was inspired by those words that sort of call to action, I thought in this in his words um, that I, and so my wolf, I knew my wolf needed to ask to be seen And I also know that knew or pretty early on that my wolf needed to, to really suffer um, and, and feel pain from being called a name that wasn't by being called by a name by someone who didn't know them at all. So, so those were, th those were the beginnings. And then that's There's really all deep. You never think about children's books being that deep, but I'm coming to find out that they all are because the oh, good ones really address a... that with such bravery and such, you know, such let's tackle this and go. I mean, they're the most, I mean, children don't, they won't buy it if it isn't authentic. Right. I mean, I don't mean buy as in terms of like in the market, I mean, like they won't like, it won't speak to them and they'll just sort of put it aside. I mean, they're very, yeah. you know, it's either speaks to their truth or doesn't, you know? And I think that's why picture books are so hard to write. I mean, I also, I, I should say that I was not, you know, that I was not a picture book writer coming into this. I mean, in terms of like having the uh, experience of writing a lot of visual narratives, uh, even in sequential art, I'd done some comics, I'd played around in all those mediums and animation especially, um, but I had not really embraced the picture book form until I sold a book. I mean, it was it was a learning on the job experience for me. I, I sold the book and then I learned how to write it. <laughs> and that was, it was a glorious experience and a very challenging as well. And in the course of that, I couldn't have done without an editor, without a designer, without these sort of very wise, wise ones who came in and interfered with my bad ideas and, 
and sort of, you know, helped me and guided me um, to the best story or to the best story I could tell about this character. Yeah. So you self-published. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I have self-published. So Wolf, so Imagine a Wolf is published by Page Street Kids. They are a a small publisher in Salem, Mass, and they are just, but they're distributed by Macmillan, so they get a nice, uh, yeah, they get a nice um, distribution. So that's kind of, was a wonderful place to land for a debut book for me. I have published in a sense. I've done, I've had commissions for uh, illustration work that went into a book project that someone else has actually pub, you know, printed in one of these commercial independent publishers. But I haven't really, I haven't sort of, as an author illustrator, I haven't self-published. It is very intriguing to me. But I, for my first picture book, I was, you know, I had, I took the traditional publishing route. And that was, I mean, as I, I mentioned before, a whirlwind in the sense that I, I sold the book as a very much a sketch of an idea. I sort of had this notion about a wolf, a story I wanted to tell, but I had, I mean, I had barely created a dummy book for this, which is the sort of industry standard of like a, what you would pitch a picture book, um, the format that you'd pitch a picture, that you would pitch a picture book in. I, I sort of, that was sort of barely born. I mean, it was, it was a, a fortunate meeting of the founding publisher of Page Street at a workshop and a um, and a collaboration with the publisher that was just you know wonderful for for me. So, you sold the book, and then you had to learn how to write it, which is <laughs> fascinating in so many ways because that really kind of forces the issue. I think a lot of people throw out ideas. Like I know a lot of creatives who just sit there and ideate and then they just move on. But you really put yourself out there. That's brave. That's brave. It was a commitment that I had made because I had a contract. (laughs) And I also had, I was committed to the idea, even as sort of ill-formed and sort of very, you know, still barely born. It was still an idea that I felt, you know, I was very passionate about. I knew I wanted to tell this this character's story. I just didn't really know what that story was yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the process of discovery of that story um, was a process of thumbnailing, uh, drawing it. Let's just say drawing and drawing and drawing and drawing. I happen to love to draw, so I was in the right place um, for, in terms of the right job for me. Uh, I, in, in terms of finding my story and working through my story problems in drawing, that was very, was a very, very good fit for me. I fell in love with that, with the picture book as an art form in the process of creating one. And that was also extraordinary for me because of course I've always loved picture books. I am obsessed with them. I have collected them. I've, I love reading to children. That's one of my favorite things in the world to do. And of course I love, I love telling stories. I love drawing. So you would think this is something that would occur, have occurred to me as an art, this, as a good fit, um, but it hadn't before. It really hadn't. It just, it was the idea came into the in my head, I couldn't let it go. And I pursued it and got really, really fortunate at a 
and a good, just being in the right place at the right time at a conference for the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, which is, um, which I credit for my, my book story um, entirely. I couldn't have, I wouldn't have sold the book without their, um, without that workshop, without that meeting opportunity. So. Yeah. So talk about some of those times you just mentioned when you got stuck in the process of getting through. Oh, like so how many, much. how many volumes of sketch pads does, you know, does Wolf have that didn't get put into the book? Oh, not just Wolf. <laughs> the sheep, there are rock star sheep. There They're are, you know, there <laughs> are characters that, that I developed pretty, to pretty far down a road before realizing that they didn't fit. And the interesting thing about when you're when you're writing and illustrating a book and you don't have in my case a really solid dummy book which is sort of like the draft of the book right then you're starting with you're starting you know kind of from scratch you're thumbnailing you've got a character in mind you have sort of a arc of a story maybe uh, or maybe you just know what emotion is important to sort of convey, which would be true for mine from the beginning. But then you're drawing and letting the drawing really find, you know, really tell you what it wants to be. So I, while I did have a sort of sketch of a manuscript, the drawing process, the thumbnail, and then taking those into more developed sketches were essential for me. And when I was stuck, I just kept drawing. So I have, I like to work with uh, trans, translucent papers like vellums. And I just keep, so I'm literally like tracing over and over an idea, literally, uh, but each time making a little bit of a change and then say, and then that I was saying before about the blank canvas, never a blank canvas because I'm always sort of working over or through on top of something that I've already given some thought to. So it's like, okay, it could be this, it could be that. So I, I couldn't tell you how many drawings I have of a wolf I could, or, or sheep for that matter. I have many, many sheep that did not make the cut. Um, and also more developed characters of Little Red Riding Hood and the three pigs and the grandmother who all ended up being kind of, not really sidelined, but just kind of given um, a little bit uh, more, I mean, less of a sort of uh, uh, central role, uh, which I think was for the better. But I will say that nearing the sort of important deadline of the transition from kind of a really fully realized dummy book into final art, which is, you know, you sort of know, you do know, you have a deadline, you know when final art, you know, needs to be started because you know when it needs to be finished. Um, I was still not sure, I, my story arc was still not, you know, absolutely uh, solid. And so I, so like a month before I went into final art, my editor and I were made pretty major changes to the story and took out a final scene. And so there was like, la and it was, it was for the better for sure. And, and 
So I would say being so tips on being stuck. I mean, one was that I had this back and forth always with, with an editor and with a book designer, they were always weighing in and they had awesome ideas. And so there was just this kind of like back and forth that would, that we would have sometimes on a phone call, but a lot of times on email and tons of notes. And then I had my, I had four children in my life who were also readers and they read many versions and they ultimately, one of those children uh, summed up the way the book needed to go. And he was right. <laughs> like, and he said it kind of early on and I heard him, but then I sort of had to go through all these other sort of convoluted possible, other possible endings, but ultimately came back to, to a, an eight-year-old's, uh, you know, sort of wisdom that was really, you know, sort of spot on. Let's do a quick summary for people who don't know they're interested in Imagine a Wolf yet, because they will be. Oh, yeah, absolutely. My motivations were to kind of get this story out because I had sort of couldn't let this wolf character go. But also I wanted to make something that appealed to children in the, particularly in a read aloud situation. So I wanted a book that was... Uh, was really that had a particular voice that was speaking directly to children and that was probably most powerfully experienced read aloud. I mean, I am utterly convinced that my interest in writing came from all the voices that were, that I gained through those stories that my mom read to us for years and years and years. I mean, we, yeah, we were so, so fortunate. So what happened to Wolf? Wolf story. So Wolf, as I mentioned before, comes from... Um, a notion of wolves uh, in fairy tale world who uh, have a bad rap. And wolf also comes from this kind of uh, reverence for the majestic creature, the wild animal, and exists somewhere in between um, in this place where there are preconceived notions about wolves. And so wolf is encountering this evidence of these preconceived notions, these negative attitudes, um, and they are reinforced or sort of it's made very clear that Wolf is encountering negative attitudes um, because you recognize the characters that are encouraging these attitudes are characters from fairy tales. So the three pigs are there and Little Red Riding Hood is there and her grandmother is there. And Wolf asks the reader from the very first moment to listen and to close your eyes and imagine a wolf and, and then stay with me here, see what I'm experiencing and see me differently. So the story arc is the wolf is encountering these uncomfortable and painful prejudices and is asking to be seen differently. And then wolf has a moment, there's a sort of heightened event uh, in terms of the emotion of it, which is um, another character from fairy tale calls out, calls Wolf by name, but calls out in the way that is to sort of draw attention in a negative way to Wolf. And the char that character is alluding, alluding to the boy who cried Wolf. And Wolf falls um, and Wolf gets up again. And not without acknowledging that that was painful, but acknowledging that, you know, even though they've been called this name and days like these are tough, they are 
resilient. And then you, you realize that the progress of the story, the, in terms of Wolf's kind of activities through the story, have been towards Wolf creating something for someone else, in this case for sheep. And the idea is that Wolf is a generous spirit and is also highly creative. Um, and what Wolf has done is created sweaters for sheep that wolf makes sheep's clothing <laughs> wolf makes sheep's clothing and wolf i think you know when i tell it i'm like it sounds like i wanted everything in the story to have to resonate already in terms of its familiarity right like sheep and wolf clothing wolf and sheep clothing all of those sort of like that play of of all of these stories that we already have so when I tell it, it seems like I'm almost like laughing as I'm telling it because it's like, oh, well, you know, here's another surprise. These sheep are not what you expected. And here's another surprise, you know, but really there can't really be a, a kind of reconsideration of this character without already sort of knowing that there's real basis in, in, the, in Wolf's complaint that there is a notion about wolves that are encouraged by fairy tales. And this is, this is a way of saying, please consider me differently because here I am, I'm a fiber artist and I am, and I am a generous fiber artist. That was my and favorite picture of her, of Wolf, by the way, um, in, the, in the yarn shop because the way you did it, you really emphasized the fiber. And it was just this big explosion of color. Like all of this was assumption, assumption, and something, and then poof, you just hit us with this beautiful perspective from above so that the page is filled with yarn. And then the next thing you see Wolf, you know, getting accosted in her happy place, you know, by these people, which just, it just tears your heart out. Well, I'm glad you have that response to it because I definitely wanted that and that sort of that you know I think you know that joy of encountering your sort of craft materials like your sort of this sort of endless supply of in this case it's uh balls of of wool and yarn to to create sweaters but you know I could imagine that in front of you know any kind of material that you're about to make something with it's like ah there's so many possibilities here you know so so I, I'm so glad that that came through because that was definitely the the feeling that I wanted it did I made a, a this could be a too long of a story but I made a video once that I loved so much and you know there's nothing so perfect in life that a client can't just eviscerate and the idea of it was there was a little girl we interviewed and she she was drawing on a piece of paper with crayons and she was drawing in blue and her name she put her name on it and her name was sky and she held it up at the end and later we interviewed a little boy who he says blue is my favorite color because it's the color of sky and then you know you put this up and it's just a wink wink nod nod to this cute you know wedding that's clearly happening in 10 years you know or whatever and I was so thrilled. I sent it to the client. They're like, mm, it's not what I want. And I just, I felt, I felt just like Wolf at that moment. So Aww. I know, but I know then it, you, it was so perfect. But then, then you just <laughs> got up and did something else. I mean, I think that getting up and going forward, that idea of resilience, I think 
while sort of not the central theme of the story, is definitely in there and very important to me. I can't imagine, I mean, I do know right now I'm working on a couple of other stories and they all in some respect address resilience. So I think there's, that's just gonna be sort of a, something that I always need to, to express in some way. Well, we're from uh, the Poconos, resilience is in our blood. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So as you're writing, do you hear, do you hear voices in your head as you write? Oh, totally. I mean, you actually, I don't even think I could write anything without hearing it first. So it starts to, I start to hear it and then I get it down and I really do. I write by hand a lot. I compose a lot by hand before it gets into any kind of digital environment, uh, for that reason, because I think you're capturing, I don't know what it is, but there's something about the hand and it's just more immediate to me. And you know, the digital, when digital gets in the way, it's a little bit getting in the way. It's fine. I mean, I, as a tool, it's magnificent, but I have to, I, the immediacy of writing is so important to me and the, the hearing it is so important. And with picture books is I think one of the reasons why I, this form for me is just like, it's just so wonderful. And I, I just can't wait to explore it more is that it is about sound. I mean, it is like, you know, it's like, it, it is, you sort of pare down and pare down to the, the words that just absolutely sing. There can't be any excess there. And especially now, especially in contemporary picture books, you know, they're so different from the ones we had as kids where there was a lot, there were a lot more words on the page than the kids books that we had. But now it's, they're, you know, they're, I mean, they've always been poetic, but now they're just sort of this, you know, more spared down, the word count is much lower. And I, I, it's a challenge. It's sort of how can you say what you need to say in, in less words and be, and have each word sing. So Oh yeah, and I think hearing those voices, like I always think, you know, like the Bee Gees wrote Islands in the Stream. I don't hear, I do hear Kenny Rogers, but I hear the Bee Gees sing it, like I can hear it. And when I'm writing, I will ascribe characters, like if I ever write about my dog, he's going to be Joe Pesci with a Southern accent. That's little Bert, you know? <laughs> but, um, you know, what, what did Wolf sound like in your head? So, that is so interesting. I, wow. Well, I, I guess the way I read Wolf would be the sound, would be always the sound that I imagined for Wolf voice. That's so interesting because when I, when I heard, when I heard the story and I did literally hear, close your eyes and imagine a wolf. Like that came to me as a sound, as a sound experience, like and I knew it needed to be there. And it was, that was from the very beginning. And that sort of never, that was always true. The book always be, that book always started there. But I guess I would have to care. I would say I could characterize Wolf's voice as, as confident um, and uh, approachable and accessible, friendly, uh, kind, all those things without a particular quality to to the voice. Interesting. Which initially my wolf, the 
story of my wolf was not the wolf who ultimately became my title character. So I have to think more about that one. I don't, I really, the sound of that voice. I'm also not one who is very good at imitating voices. So some people are so good at that. I bet you're good at that. I, I am like pretty horrible at it. I just do it for self-entertainment. So I don't know if I would even have like been thinking, that's not why my, my mind's not really wired that way. But anyway, all the, those characteristics of the voice, you know, like the art form itself, like that, like a picture book is this accessible thing that is generous and open and right here, immediate. It doesn't require like, you know, uh, sort of like, I mean, I guess I'm comparing it to sort of being a visual artist and showing in a gallery, right? You need to sort of, you don't need like an entrance pass to the gallery, but you kind of need to be like cool enough to go in. So I don't know, it's like, it's a whole different, the audience for, for looking at art in this way that I've shown my work before is so different from the picture book. And I'm so, so into this notion of, the, of accessibility of a book and even though, of course, picture books are, you know, they cost something and they're not, you know, they're, but they're also in libraries, you know, they're, so they can be, they can be had in your hands for, for nothing, for a library loan, you know, which is, which is a beautiful thing. So I, I don't know if that, I wanted, I needed to say that I wanted, like, that is one of the really appealing aspects to me of this art form that is. And I think it's a driver on why people create you know I think some people would like to sell a painting for a million dollars and and but it probably means more if it's seen by a million children who can dream and do and feel better and get themselves up and knit sweaters for sheep you know that seems so much more appealing to me than any kind of sale of a painting that no one will ever see again and I, you know, I just, I, without really being able to articulate it, I resisted the gallery notion, even as I was sort of like setting myself up for that path. Like, what else are you going to do if you're, you know, I mean, obviously there's so many things you can do as an artist, but like I went to art school and I making big paintings, what else I do, you know, but, but then realizing as this was, as I was kind of out in the world that the most appealing places to show my work were the places where that no one expected to find it, you know, and that is a that is also feeding into this love of this form because I feel like you could have an art experience in a picture book and you're not sort of like all geared up to have an art experience. And so it sort of like unfolds literally and there it is and you get transported, hopefully if it's done well, like you, you know, and you didn't, have to sort of enter a sacred space or, you know, I don't know if that makes sense, but. No, it does. I think it's, it's nice. I mean, I feel like when I do music, I have things in my head about what I'm singing. You know, even if I'm doing a cover song, it means something to me or I can't, I can't deliver it if I can't find an audience in my head for it, if that makes sense. It's so, it makes sense. And it's also something that I, I didn't really, I address in, in art school or, you know, in a way that I, I kind of wish that had been a message long ago um, about audience, because I think I probably would have known back then or had an inkling that I was not a 
you know, the white wall, like the white walls and the sort of those kind of spaces were not my spaces. I love them. They are sacred spaces for me or very special spaces for me for viewing work uh, as are so many other kinds of spaces and museums obviously. And, but as far as my own work and expression, I feel like this is so much more my style. <laughs> so. Yeah. Now you said something to me years ago. I feel like we got together once since high school. You remember we sat down at some cafe or whatever. And um, in Stroudsburg? Somewhere. Stroudsburg. Anyway, you had talked about how you were painting um, murals for, for little kids, for some of your, your clients in, in bedrooms and things like that. Like, does that matter? Like the audience, it makes a difference. Like it, it really kind of... Oh, it does. I mean, those murals, I mean, I was doing the, that children's mural. I, I, that is so wild that we were, we connected at that point. That was when I was living in New York and right. that, oh, that was such a neat project. That was, so the child was very young. I mean, so young that he, he was going to, he was, a, I mean, essentially a baby. I think he was like one years old, maybe. Um, but he was growing up in a, an apartment that overlooked Central Park and so I envisioned this mural that would, that would create, it was sort of like an, it was his view from this window of this apartment, but, but it's kind of like with all these sort of magical creatures and every coming, kind of coming into play there and, you know, that he would grow up with that. Um, I loved that idea. I just, I needed for him, I thought, well, this is this thing that he'll continue to discover things in because it was very detailed and it was this sort of like elaborate world that I thought, you know, he would really for years keep finding new things. Um, so, so he was, a, even though he was not articulating that, he was a baby, um, I sort of like, you know, I imagined what he would, you know, kind of like how through the years he would, you know, engage with this mural and, and maybe I think he wouldn't know right away that it was the view from the apartment window, but then ultimately he'd realize that and that would be cool in itself. So yeah, I, I, I totally, I think the audience is really important. I don't think I articulated it in my, certainly not in my youth and definitely not like in my, like when I was first going to art school, I wish I had thought, wish I had talked more about it. And now I'm just, I mean, it, with a picture book, there is such a, everything has to do It's the, the whole thing is like a poem. Like, it's not just that the words have to sing, but everything has to be just so and not excess for it to communicate what you want it to communicate. And, right. and I'm still, I still really struggle with that. I mean, I am somebody who loves the flourishes this book was actually really, uh, you know, unadorned for in terms of the things I like to do. Like my my book designer just you know nixed all the backgrounds except for except for the background of the setting of the the street scene because that had sort of had to be in a particular space. But generally speaking, I mean, there was no kind of excess sort of background adornment there was like a real you know there the art direction was you know keep this very focused on this character right, without the distraction which i thought was just 
the right call, but really hard for me. <laughs> like I really wanted the adornment. So, and so then, yeah. you know. You're bringing up so many things that I wish I had learned in, in school in one way or another. You know, the power of, of collaboration, the power of getting out of your own way and, and thinking about who things are for. You know, there's so many, there's so much good creative juice in there that when I see like kids coming out of college, they're like, I want to make what I like. And I'm like, mm, how nice, <laughs> you know, like, but we could still be, we still have to be creative through it. But I think that collaboration and that, you know, knowing your audience is, is like mature creativity. Oh, totally. I mean, I make my students declare their audience like right off the bat. In fact, do you mind map at all? Have you done any of that? No. Mind mapping? I probably should. I'm way too, like, I I think I'm, you know, I think that would just put me in a place. (laughs) I think you, no, I am such a believer in it. I, I, I was introduced to it by this awesome installation artist, Lauren Fensterstock at this, at Haystack, actually, that school in Deer Isle I was telling you about that's just a magical place. Um, but the mind mapping has been, has become essential to my process. And it's, mm-hmm. but in that, in that process, I ask who the audience is for anything that I'm doing. It's like who, the who, what, where, when, why of it are these, you know, and it's a brainstorming activity, really. I mean, you you're, you can, you, it is a drawing ultimately, but it's like, you're really doing sort of lots of, of brainstorming and idea generating and letting it all kind of like be in this messy map that you then begin to sort of realize has isn't as much of a mess as you thought like and it but it's like a way of like that essential question of and the other essential questions I think are you know asked right out front like I think that's up on the top of the list of the reasons for being oh yeah and uh, I think too, like I've seen a lot of songwriters do things like do maps like that. I just need to do it. I'm just, I lack discipline. That's my problem. <laughs> I, so I, it's so funny. I, I think about this word discipline, like what is my discipline? I mean, I, I feel like, well, I don't know how you work. I mean, I, if I'm get, if I'm in something I don't, I sometimes like forget to eat. I mean, I'm like, I can be definitely that, that deep in it and, and not, you know, you know, if I'm following an idea, you know, when I was working on the artwork for Wolf, which was a six week, basically six weeks from kind of like final art approval to delivery. So it was like very intense period of creating. And I was, you know, totally, totally in it. And like, just had to kind of shut out a lot of the outside world in order to do that. So discipline, I don't even know if that would even have been an applicable word. Cause it's like, I just got up, went to the studio and 10 hours later, went to bed <laughs> like that was, or whatever, 12 hours later. Like, right, um, right. I guess that's discipline, but I don't know. I, I do highly recommend the mind map. <laughs> like I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to say, I think you should do it. I teach it like literally in all the, in class, every time I do any kind of like, I feel like it's applicable to almost any kind of teaching that I'm doing. So like, I'm, you know, especially I'm doing, I'm teaching about picture book writing 
kind of, or a bit about narrative art, you know, in general, like that mind map exercise always blows students' minds. Like it's always like the, they think they come, they come in thinking even they know what their story is. And then the mind map just kind of like, whoa, opens up all these possibilities. It's true. It's true. And that process always takes you somewhere where you, you know, you learn to let go of things that you thought were, you just thought you had to have. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. There's the letting go. There are the things that are extraneous, the things that are not coming up for you in big ways. Like, and of course the things that, that surprise you that are really uh, coming up over and over as being important. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Which brings me to, as we, we, uh, as we come to our close today, which has been so much fun. I'm so glad I asked you if you could talk about three creative tools that you always have in your in your toolkit. Do you want to talk about those? Yeah. So I don't have an index card though. Did you want? That's okay. No, no. You just, we just, I can send that to you. I mean, I, so my creative tool, I didn't take this literally like as a, as like a physical thing. My first creative tool is never a blank canvas. And so that meaning that everything, every surface that I am encountering is sort of like where I'm going to make something. I've done something already to it to consider. So even if it's just a canceling out of that mark or whatever, it's like that in effect, like that beginnings is essential to me that I have, there's already something there. So like, you know, there's no, well, I was thinking about how a lot of illustrators who I've, you know, like sort of immersed myself or understanding their process that they will draw their final art to such a degree that when they actually go to make the final art, there's sort of no surprise because I mean, and that's sort of important to their process, right? So I cannot relate to that at all because for me, that final art is inevitably is like if there aren't surprises there like if there isn't something that's talking to me and sort of saying hmm you thought this but maybe really better this I I can't it's not interesting I mean it's just it's that's not there's not going to be no life in it like I so I so while I do I will just sort of like make a really, I will, you know, like I said, start with some kind of surface that's already been manipulated in some way so that I have something to to just react to, whatever. But then I will also, you know, as I develop a drawing and to like a degree of rendering that's really sort of like, I figured out my drawing problems because you obviously want to do that before you do anything in final art. And then I let the final art, I let the work talk to me. So that would be my second. So my first thing would be that I never a blank canvas, but my second thing would be that I really, really listen to the work and the material. So I cannot imagine working in a digital environment for this reason, that I have to have the material that has all kinds of accident potential. I need (laughs) all of that in my creative, in my toolbox. Like I need to work with something that could spill. I have to have the possibility that something could go disastrously wrong. And if it does go wrong, that's sometimes really good for me. <laughs> like I, I feed off of that. Yeah. Yeah. If that makes sense. That makes so, perfect sense. So, yeah. 
Is that two or three? <laughs> that was two. But I, I think, you know, we, we summarize that saying necessity is the mother of invention. And sometimes necessity is spilling, spillage. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know if this is appropriate to say that I am, I am so into looking at other at artwork and, and reading other work. I mean, that's the, to me that I think that would qualify as a tool. I mean, I'm a huge, like I listen to other creative people. Like I listen to poetry. I read poetry. I'm a big listener of books because I, those voices, that sort of sound, all of that seems to be really important to my own flow. I'm constantly looking at at art. And I mean, I've been, we've been deprived for this past year of the museum experience, the gallery experience, but oh man, I cannot wait to be in front of work. I, it's not the same on the digital, in the digital environment. So, so that would probably be my, my third thing would be, I guess, just that constant feeding of, I can't get enough of it. I mean, there's no over overload for me in terms of imagery. Um, It's all, it's like collecting and collecting and, and it all seems to be important. Awesome. So my producer is asking a favor of you. He would like a wolf howl. (laughs) (laughs) I should have brought my pup. She's actually a much better howler than I am. (laughs) (laughs) But I do, I do the, as I, that became my, um, my character, as you know, I, my character took over social media for, for the month of January, essentially, but yes, uh, it's fun, by the way, to take a, a character real, when the yeah. work is done and just do whatever you want with her. That, or, or, yeah, or yeah, that was, um, that was a way of just dealing with the sort of weirdness of the uh, book launch in a pandemic. I just thought I'm going to just make this fun in some way, like yeah. for myself and hopefully for someone else. So yeah. tell, tell everybody where they can find you, where they can find Imagine a Wolf. Ah, so they Imagine can a kind wolf. of see some of that. So Imagine a Wolf is pretty much anywhere you can purchase a book. You can purchase Imagine a Wolf. I like to send people if they're shopping online to bookshop.org. That's a site that will send you to other independent booksellers. Uh, of course, support your local independent booksellers, but you can also find uh, Imagine a Wolf in very convenient places like Amazon and Target and Barnes and Noble online. So sad, and, by the way. Um, <laughs> what was what was your other question? Oh, <laughs> and uh, where can we find you on Instagram and things oh, like that? So I have a website, uh, which is my name, luckyplatt.com, and links to social media through that site. Um, I'm on Instagram as Lucky Platt. Actually, my my handle is I'm, I am Lucky Platt. And same with Twitter, same with Facebook. And I'm pretty good on all of those in terms of being responsive. I did have to, um, to take that full dive into the social media that I was, I had resisted for a while, especially Twitter, but now I'm like into it. So it's, yeah, so I'm, it's, I've, I've found a way to make it fun. So awesome. Well, I hope everybody looks you up and thank you so much, Lucky Platt, for spending an hour with me after all this time. This has been delightful and I'm so glad. Oh, likewise. This has been amazing. Thank you. I, this is such a great, I, I, this is inspiring conversation. I definitely, um, yeah, it's so 
it's, I so appreciate the opportunity to talk about the book, but also just sort of like churn those ideas about creative works. It's like, you, it doesn't really get articulated that much. I love, I love this project. I'm just like yes. totally support this and can't wait to see what you guys do with this. And I can't, I can't wait to hear your, <laughs> can't wait to join, you know, to tune in. Awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you everybody for joining us. We'll see you soon. I'll be in Maine. Thank you. <laughs> Coming to Maine. All right. Yes, come visit. The creative backstory wouldn't be possible without the support of JuxtaHub, Emmaus, Pennsylvania's Arts and Innovation Center, where people from all walks of life gather, create, and grow. If you've been inspired by a creative person in your life, or have a story about your favorite creative processes, we'd love to hear about it. Contact us at thecreativebackstory at gmail.com. 